Since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, the eyes of the world have been on Gaza, understandably. But another front in this conflict is the West Bank, which is a kidney bean-shaped piece of land on the West Bank of the Jordan River. Palestinians live in the West Bank alongside Jewish settlers, people who have pushed into the area, seeking land and housing, who've built cities, and who believe they have a right to be there, even though most of the international community has condemned their settlements as illegal. Some Settlers violently attack the Palestinians living there with impunity. And since this war began, those attacks have gotten bad enough for the eyes of the world to occasionally leave Gaza and look to the West Bank. I continue to be alarmed about extremist settlers attacking Palestinians in the West Bank, that uh, pouring gasoline on fire is what it's like. Ahead on Today Explained. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This is Today Explained. My name's Nathan Thrall. So for a decade, I worked with an organization called the International Crisis Group, which is a conflict prevention organization that works in some dozens of conflict areas all over the world. And I was in charge of Israel-Palestine managing a small team in the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel. Nathan is the author of a new book called A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, about a Palestinian father from the West Bank searching for his son who's gone missing after a bus accident. The book tells some of the history of Israeli settlements in the West Bank and illustrates why Israel faces mighty criticism for its support of settlers, not just from Palestinians, but also from some Israelis and from the international community. I asked Nathan to start by telling us what the West Bank looks like and who lives there. The West Bank is uh, quite hilly. It has a mountain ridge running through uh, the middle of it, north to south. And it is covered with Israeli settlements. And these settlements in the popular imagination are a set of caravans haphazardly erected on a hilltop. But in fact, they are towns and cities that look identical to the communities of similar size within Israel proper. And they are connected seamlessly to Israel proper 
The residents of these communities include Israel's elite. They include uh, Supreme Court justices. They include ministers in the Israeli government and many, many other uh, government employees and leaders in um, industry. And these people are able to live in these communities precisely because they have been segregated from the Palestinian population that surrounds them, and they have been given uh, roads that uh, cut through these Palestinian communities without having exits or entrances for the Palestinian communities that these highways pass through. And this whole architecture, this infrastructure, gives the residents, the Jewish residents of these settlements, the illusion that they are living in a Jewish-only zone where they don't really have to confront or think about the Palestinians who are uh, just beside them. And they can go very easily to their workplaces in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem and believe that they are living in a suburb just like any other. How long have the settlements, the Israeli settlements, been in the West Bank? The settlement project began really as soon as Israel conquered the West Bank in East Jerusalem. In the years that followed the war in 1967, Israeli civilians, settlers, started moving into the West Bank. They are the children of Ofra, a new settlement of 40 Jewish families on what once was Arab land. Those settlements were created by the Israeli center-left that had been in power since the establishment of the state in 1948 and remained in power until 1977. So for the first decade of the settlement project, it was driven by uh, center-left governments. And uh, it's important to stress it was driven by the government. This is not a story of a bunch of radicals twisting the arm of the state against its will, which is how it's often depicted. This is a state-driven project, and it is, in fact, the greatest project, the largest and most expensive project that the state of Israel has undertaken. And so, as the settlers have moved in, how have they justified this? There are a number of different uh, motivations for moving to the settlements. Broadly speaking, there are three groups of settlers. There are ideologically driven settlers who believe that the West Bank is the historic homeland of the Jewish people and that they have every right to uh, build homes and establish Israeli sovereignty in these areas, no less so than Israel had a right to establish uh, settlements in 78% of historic Palestine, the borders of Israel prior to 1967. And this is an argument that they make to their detractors in Israeli politics. The second type of settler is just an ordinary uh, middle class or uh, upper middle class person who is moving there because there are financial incentives to do so. You can have a nicer home, a larger home, a less expensive home. 
And because it has all been set up in a way that makes it painless to live there and gives you the sense that this is really no different than any other suburb, members of the middle class do move there. And what happens over time is they often start to shift ideologically after moving there because every human being naturally wants to feel justified in what they're doing. And the third type are ultra-Orthodox Jews, and they historically had avoided living in settlements, but that uh, changed. And they live in a few settlements, but they're very large and uh, dense, and those settlements are, for the most part, closer to the edge of the West Bank, closer to the boundary with pre-1967 Israel. How do Palestinian and Jewish residents of the West Bank interact with each other? Do they interact with each other typically? The Palestinian and uh, Jewish communities in the West Bank are entirely segregated, and the settlements have uh, gates at their entrances and uh, security guards at those gates, and Palestinians are not allowed to enter them unless they are coming as uh, pre-approved workers, uh, as cleaners or uh, gardeners or construction workers. That's the uh, degree of segregation that exists in uh, the West Bank. Okay, so this is a highly unequal situation. If you are Palestinian in the West Bank, you are subject to restrictions. You are subject to inequities. But then on top of that, Nathan, we hear about settler violence. What does this refer to? What does that mean? So settler violence is a broad term that includes everything from settlers going and burning down uh, olive trees of uh, Palestinians who live uh, nearby. It includes uh, raids on Palestinian communities in the middle of the night. It includes activities that Israeli officials even have referred to as pogroms, such as the burning of uh, all kinds of property in the town of Hawara earlier this year or in the town of Turmus Aya last June. Dozens of settlers came here. They tried to enter the courtyard and they set cars on fire. They started shooting towards the house using live bullets and stones and they broke the balconies. The Palestinians who are attacked are entirely defenseless in this situation. They know that if they lay a single finger on an armed settler who enters their home, they can be arrested and put in jail and locked up in what is known as administrative detention, which is detention without trial or charge. Israel can do that for six months to somebody and then extend it indefinitely. It's uh, unbelievable that people spending years and years under administrative detentions with no charges. They don't know why. They don't know for how long. And so when a Palestinian encounters a settler militia, they know that putting their finger on that settler is not putting their hand on an individual. It's putting their hand on the entire state of Israel, this enormous machine that controls their every movement and that can arrest them and their family members at any moment. How is it that 
the settlers can commit such violence without legal repercussions. Where does the law fit in here? The law doesn't fit in here because there is total impunity for the settlers. When there are uh, cases filed against settlers for attacks on Palestinians, fewer than 10% result in an indictment and only 3% result in a conviction. That's uh, data from the last 18 years. And now, after October 7th, when most of the regular army is off uh, in Gaza or on the border with Lebanon, you have those same settlers who were attacking the Palestinian communities several months ago, now in uniform with full authority to do those same attacks as the army. We know that there will be an end in Gaza. We don't know what it is. And it sounds as though the Netanyahu government and the international community are actively debating, discussing what the end in Gaza will look like. But in the West Bank, it seems as though there is no end in mind. How do you envision this playing out? Where do you think this is all leading, Nathan? No matter how long this war in Gaza lasts, whether it's weeks or months or years, at the end of it, we are going to be in the situation that we were in on October 6th, which is 7 million Palestinians, 7 million Jews, all living under Israeli rule. And the vast majority of those Palestinians don't have basic civil rights. That's the situation that the international community and the United States will need to address if they want to see an end to this recurrent bloodshed. That's Nathan Thrall. His estimable new book is called A Day in the Life of Abed Salama. Coming up, a reporter who covers the West Bank on what Palestinians there have been experiencing since October 7th. Support for Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile, the only cell phone that tastes good. When the deal is too good to be true, there's probably a catch, right? That incredibly cheap flight to Europe? You probably can't bring a bag or pick your seat or use the restroom. So when I tell you that Mint Mobile offers wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably wondering, what's the catch? Well, according to Mint Mobile, there is no catch. According to Mint Mobile, it's only 15 bucks a month and their plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash explain. That is mintmobile.com slash explain. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash explain. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Hold up. 
Support for the show comes from Shopify today. Shopify is, of course, the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. You know that friend of yours who's like on that next level yoga, who's like doing backflips? That's like Shopify when it comes to helping your business sell at every stage of growth. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you turn browsers into buyers and sell your products everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point of sale system. Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. And right now they're offering Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to give you a little boost and help you stress less and sell more. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash explained. Go to shopify.com slash explained now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash explained. Intum jami'an tistamaun ila wa'uda haliyom. You're listening to Today Explained. My name is Dalia Hatuka. I'm a journalist. I've been working on Israel-Palestine for about 23 years now. Dalia splits her time between Amman, Jordan, and Ramallah in the West Bank, where she reports on the lives of people there. I think mostly what I'd like to see is for people to really get to know uh, life as it is in the West Bank. I'd like them to really get to know Palestinians and not to have these preset thoughts about who Palestinians are. Dahlia sees her job as clearing up misconceptions about Palestinians in the West Bank. I think one of them is the idea that somehow Palestinians hate Israelis or hate Jews. I I don't think that's true. I think If there's anybody who really understands Israelis and Jews are probably Palestinians, I think that no matter what, our fate is united in a sense. We have a a shared fate, I I would say, because we're both not going anywhere and we're going to have to find a way to live on this land together. Dahlia and Nathan Thrall both describe a situation in the West Bank in which Palestinians are very unsafe, and violence is perpetrated by settlers supported by Israeli forces. I asked Dahlia what happened in the West Bank after Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel. So the things that I've been seeing in the West Bank are kind of reminiscent of the days of the Second Intifada. So um, an increase in the settler attacks, uh, both in quantity and also in the ferocity, an increase in the numbers of Israeli military checkpoints, uh, the humiliation of Palestinians that set checkpoints, etc. So since the 7th of October, we've had at least 200 Palestinians, a quarter of them children, killed by Israeli forces, and an additional eight, including one child, that have been killed by Israeli settlers. We've seen raids, um, Israeli military raids, being carried out every day, almost, in the West Bank where uh, Israeli forces are rounding up mostly Palestinian men. Some of them are members of Hamas, but many others are not. We're talking 2,000 people that have been detained since October 7th. Dahlia, when we hear settler violence, what should we envision? Because I'm trying to imagine the circumstances in which a settler, which I understand to be a civilian, not somebody who's in the army, ends up killing a Palestinian child. 
And it's a, it's a little beyond what I can imagine. How how do these interactions unfold? First, I'm not really sure what the designation of international humanitarian law is for settlers, but they are armed. They're armed to the teeth, irrespective of what their designation is. Far-right Minister of National Security Itamar Ben-Gavir, a settler himself, loosening gun regulations for Israelis and announcing plans to purchase 10,000 rifles for civilian security teams in the West Bank. In other words, for settlers. On the 11th of October, I was talking to this man called Ibrahim Al-Wadi. He was talking to me because some people had been shot and killed by settlers and uh, soldiers in a village near Nablus in the northern West Bank. He was telling me that he witnessed an uptick in Israeli settler violence in his village. And he was talking about how the attacks were relentless. Like, what happens is that these villages are normally surrounded by settlements, uh, which sit at the top of the hill, while the Palestinian cities or towns or villages are usually at the bottom. Like, uh, So the settlers are overlooking these towns or villages. Anyways, his village is encircled by these settlements. And the next day, he went with his son to attend the funeral of four Palestinians who had been shot by settlers the day I spoke to him. It was a funeral procession. And uh, Ibrahim and his son Ahmed were attending, as many others from the village were as well. Um, But the procession came to a halt when settlers arrived and started throwing rocks. And then they started using live ammunition. And both Ibrahim and his son were shot dead. But before he was killed, Ibrahim was saying to me that he was worried that the settlers would use the Gaza war as a cover to carry out more attacks. No one has been taken into custody or charged with their murder. Um, A few weeks ago, a Palestinian man was shot dead also by Israeli settlers while working with his family in an olive grove. I talked to a friend of mine whose aunt and uncle are two elderly folks in the village of Taibe. They're Palestinian-Americans. They were also attacked by settlers as they were in their olive groves. Uh, It's olive season at the moment, and that's when settlers come out, like, they end up, you know, stealing the crops, the tools, the ladders. Um, They torch vehicles, even trees. I mean, my heart is with these trees. These trees are like 100-year-old olive trees. Anyways, and, and the old folks, like, the woman's like 82 years old. Her wrist was broken. Her husband was hit in the head with a rock. I could go on and on, but these are some of the things that people go through when I say there's a settler attack. It's the kind of like, it's a situation where these armed people come down from their settlements, which are fortresses, so to speak, and they attack Palestinians and take what they want, torch what they want. And a lot of the times it's under the protection of the Israeli army. All the time make a problem for us because they want to see this land without Palestinians. But Palestinians are are here. We are here. When you interview Palestinians in the West Bank after incidents like this, and this is, as you've said, been going on for years, what do they say about their place in the West Bank? What is the mood among Palestinians there? 
So the mood oscillates between charged and cautious. It moves between fear and anticipation. Life is very hard here. For example, we can't go out because of the checkpoints and roadblocks. And we're constantly worried we could be killed at any time. You get a sense that people are afraid of a, a repetition of the 2002 Israeli invasion that destroyed much of the West Bank's infrastructure and left many people dead. And I think that a repetition of that invasion is is in people's minds, like when they clear out grocery store shelves, for example, uh, because they're worried that there's going to be a stretch of long days where they're being trapped inside due to an army curfew, which may or may not come, but that's the kind of fear that people have. Do Palestinians in the West Bank have confidence in their government? No, especially during these past few weeks since October 7th, there are demonstrations against Israel's bombardment in Gaza, but some of the anger has been directed against the Palestinian Authority. In one incident, for example, protesters threw chairs and other items at uh, Palestinian Authority security forces, and these guys lobbed tear gas and stun grenades. Mahmoud Abbas, the PA president, has been calling for a ceasefire. He can speak, but almost no one's listening to him. He's 87 years old. He's presided over the Palestinian Authority since 2005. He's weak and unpopular. More than 80% of Palestinians said that they wanted Abbas to step aside and make room for a new leader. I think they want a new leadership that speaks to their aspirations. And I think people don't have confidence in him whatsoever. The sentiment permeating uh, in the West Bank is one of loneliness and isolation, I would say, and also vulnerability. Uh, Palestinians feel that there is no one to protect them. I think that what will happen is the international community will continue to pump uh, money and uh, support for the Palestinian Authority because they can't envision anybody else taking over. They're also afraid of a scenario uh, similar to what happened in Gaza where Hamas takes over. And so my fear uh, for the West Bank is that in addition to the political status quo, the status quo on the ground is going to be turning into an opportunity for settlers to take up more territory. While everybody has kind of uh, shifted their attention, and rightly so to Gaza, in the West Bank, we've seen attempts by settlers to carry out these displacements and land theft. That was Dalia Hatuka. She's an independent journalist based in Ramallah in the West Bank and in Amman, Jordan. Today's episode was produced by Avishai Artsy and edited by Matthew Collette. Laura Bullard and Serena Solon are our fact checkers. And Patrick Boyd is our engineer. I'm Noelle King. It's Today Explained. <laughs> 